Well, hello and welcome back to Flash Knockdown, episode four of the weekly podcast brought to you by Matron Boxing, where we'll be talking through all the latest stories from the squared circle and having some fun along the way with some very, very special guests. We are back in the studio this week at Matram HQ in Brentwood. I'm your host, Jamie Ward, joined by producer Scott, who has returned from Saudi Arabia without much of a tan, which does make me question whether he did indeed keep his coat on the whole time. More from him later. Coming up on episode four, Lee Wood joins us as he prepares to square off in an absolute cracker with hard-hitting Mexican Maurizio Lara. Daniel Gill joins us live from Australia to reflect on his fight with Darren Barker nine years on. Co-founder of IFL TV, Coogan Cassius. He's on the show to talk his journey from bouncer to big-time two-time IBF world featherweight king Josh Warrington looks to top the dance partners leaderboard and the savage Alan Babbage talks through the best things to happen in boxing last week. Don't go anywhere. Well, as referenced at the top of the show, we are returning to Nottingham on September the 24th as Lee Wood, after the two biggest wins of his career against Yukan and Michael Conlon, prepares to jump into the hottest of fires once again, this time against Bronco Maurizio Lara. Well, Lee, thanks for coming on, mate. My lord, what credit you deserve for taking this fight. A voluntary defence against one of the most feared men in the featherweight division, Mauricio Lara. I guess, first of all, mate, my question is, how did this fight come about and why Mauricio Lara? <laughs> um, well, first of all, you know, I could have had an easy fight. I could have had an easy, a ticket fight, they say. I didn't really, I didn't really think a ticket over fight is good for your career. It's not good for rep- reputation. And especially the situation I'm in, you know, I'm 34. So I've probably got a handful of fights left. I want to be in big fights. I want every fight to be a step forward, not a step back. I don't want people to look back at me and go, oh, you know what? He had an easy fight there. I want them to look back and go, you know what? He didn't need that fight. He took a step forward and it took a risk, high risk, high reward. Fair play. And I think that's a great attitude to have. We know, of course, Josh Warrington's got his own mandatory to deal with later on this year. But having watched Lara's two fights back with Josh, first of all, I suppose, what did you see in Mauricio Lara that A, you feel you can exploit and B, that perhaps doesn't necessarily concern you, that it might concern other featherweights? Yeah, well, first of all, styles make fights. And one of my best attributes that gets been overlooked for the last few fights, really, is my ability to adapt what's in front of me. And that's down to my new team with Ben, Lee Wiley and Barry Smith. Adapting to what's in front of me is important. You know, I can't approach them the, the same way the same as I get beat. But that adaptability is what's been getting the wins over the line. Russo Law is very, very dangerous. But stylistically for Josh, absolute nightmare. I look at him as a little bit of a bully. The, the fight that is won, the, the kids can't really punch like he can. So now he's going to up against it with me. A big puncher, be a big puncher. But I've also got that, that great experience and, and boxing pedigree as well. You think you say talking about Josh Warrington there and Styles make fights. You think it's the fighters who tend to to punch with Josh. We know he's a, a big volume puncher, but someone like Laura who can punch with him and punch harder than him is that perhaps why you think he came unstuck in that fight? Yeah. So, for example, someone with a high volume who they, they, throws a lot of punches against a big puncher is never a good stylistically a style a good style matchup. If you look at Kanzu and myself, you know I managed to reduce his output. The defining factor for the fight was in the last round when he was punching. And I caught him. So yeah, same with Josh, you know, he's a volume puncher, throws a lot of punches against one like Mauricio Lara, who's the big puncher. It's never going to be uh, a good outcome. Well, this fight between yourself, Lee, and, and Lara, all action on paper. I mean, fireworks. Navarrete said he's the hardest puncher he's been in with in sparring. Looking at, at your recent performances, this can't go 12, can it? Are you, are you telling me this is going to go 12 <laughs> rounds? You won't expect it. Um, but you never know, you know, you have to prepare for 12. I've seen many, many things in Mauricio Lara's game that, 
I, I can exploit. You know, he is a big puncher. He is dangerous, but at the same time, he's very reckless. He makes a lot of mistakes. He hasn't got a clue about pace. You know, these are things that on on finite, I will be taking advantage of. Well, Lee, the graphic designers here in the office have been busy at work, working on the artwork for the show. Like all big fights has a strap line. We've just come off Rage on the Red Sea out in Saudi Arabia. So I'm going to propose to you my strap line for, for this fight. I'm going to go with shootout. <laughs> short and sweet. Sounds, short and sweet to the point. Good. It sounds good that, you know, put, put cowboy hats on us both. Yeah. Put gun holsters on, on the posters. Now, me, um, yeah, it could, it could well be. It, it, you know, from the outside, it, it looks like that. It looks that way. But, you know, like I said, we are both very big punchers. So it only takes one shot and, and the fight could be over in seconds. But, at the same time, like I said, I've got experience, but like I've been with better fighters, and the main thing for me is, is sticking to a game plan, and I know what I've got to do to be in. All right, well, maybe we'll uh, run with that narrative. I suppose uh, <laughs> I suppose for you, Lee, obviously watching back the fight with Mick, I mean, I've been a matchman for three years, probably the best fight I've seen in my in my time here. When you, when you did go down early on in the fight, what do you have to do differently this time around against someone, like you say, who is a bigger puncher than Mick Conlon in Mauricio Lara to, to stay switched on from the opening bell? What, what have you been doing in camp with Ben so far and what do you have to make sure you do yourself to make sure you don't let that happen again? Yeah, well, first of all, like I said, styles make fights and Michael Conlon for me is probably the worst style matchup for me. I'm not very good with South Wars. I've only boxed really two was a pro. He was one of them and the first one, I lost her. So you can imagine um, rounders in the bank on fight night with South Wars. I've got hardly any. The boxing, boxing wise, for me, that's always going to be a challenge. When I came out, I didn't really have respect for his power because I caught a few shots first, and I didn't really have that respect for his power. And then he caught me off guard. He, he saw me downstairs and caught up the shot upstairs, a brilliant shot, but literally caught me out off guard. It wasn't that it was a big shot. So when there's not that respect for someone's power, you can get caught. That's the first time I've been down in my whole career. The first time I've, I've ever been down in the gym or on fight night. And hopefully it'll be the last. But like I said, without not having that respect for his power, he caught me with a shot that I didn't see coming. With Mauricio Lara, I know he's got the power. So the respect's there straight away. So I know I can't be lazy or complacent or parrying too high, parrying too big. You know, I'll be ready to shot. That's that maybe the defining difference. And I know Josh Warrington was obviously so vocal about the mistakes he made heading into the first fight with Lara that he was overlooking him and he was looking for these big unification fights. I know you won't be doing the same. But looking towards next year, you know, Leo Santa Cruz, I believe that deal was actually agreed as, as close as last week. But that's obviously taken a turn. The unification with Josh Warrington, I mean, imagine how big that fight would be. Are these are these the types of fights you believe once you get past Lara that, that we'll see Lee Wood in? Absolutely. I believe that out of top, maybe top six, Marissa Lara is probably the most dangerous, if not top two out of the most dangerous kids in that top, set, top six. So I'm confident I'm getting the job done and coming through this fight leaves me only big fights. Uh, again, you know, like I said, step forward again, keep stepping forward. You know, keep getting wrote off time and time again. I'm sure this fight will come out in a few days and you're going to see some of the, the comments and that. But, um, you know, I thrive on it. I thrive on being the underdog. It's something that now, not only am I used to, but I need, I need to be that underdog. I need to have that on my side because I feel it wouldn't be normal if I didn't. Well, Lee, top man, you deserve so much credit. Like I said, we can't wait to get back into the arena in Nottingham, September the 24th. Moll of Kintyre ringing round full blast <laughs> once again, my man. Uh, bring it on, eh? I can't wait. I can't wait. And, um, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm filling arenas now. I want to keep that momentum and I want to keep stepping forward, not backwards. And this is the right fight, the right time for me. Um, and I want to prove a lot of people wrong. Cannot wait. Lee Wood versus Maurizio Lara live on the zone September 24th in Nottingham. Do not miss it. Lee, thanks for coming on, mate. 
we are back at Matrim HQ in Brentwood, Essex. A little bit of a humid day today. We've got the window open once again. Scott, producer Scott, you're back. But I must say, you promised me when we did the podcast remotely that you weren't going to take a jacket. You had your legs out. Where's the tan, mate? I mean, I thought it was 40 degrees over there. What's going on? It was, mate. But actually looking back, it wasn't outside an awful lot. You know, it was a lot of hotel sort of function room work going on. Um, yeah, so unfortunately, my new sunglasses that I bought at Duty Free did not see the light of day either. And there was no coat packed. But, um, <laughs> yeah, still as pale as ever, unfortunately. Yeah, well, how w- how was it out there? I mean, from obviously watching on the telly, it's difficult to gauge what the atmosphere is like. You know, I'm, I'm not going to say it's maybe as lively as it, as it would have been if it was here in the UK, say back at Spurs once again. But some key moments in that fight, particularly the ninth round, what was it like from ringside and, and what was the, the general view from the matchroom staff? Yeah, it's interesting being in the arena. Like you say, the atmosphere is different. And I remember it from when um, Callum beat Groves a couple of years ago. It was quite a clappy sort of audience. You know, someone landed a punch. It was very, very much clap, clap. And that was the same again, actually, in the ninth. And at the time, being there, it kind of felt like Joshua was maybe on top and could possibly get him out of there. But, I mean, watching it back the following day um, wasn't the case. But being caught up in that sort of um, bubble, if you like, you know, can lead you down to sort of a full sense of uh, emotions, should we say. And then, I mean... What a 10th round for The round after, off the back of Joshua's best round. Incredible, Incredible, mate. Is is that the the mark of a champion? I remember we always talked about Katie Taylor in the Jonas fight where she really had to dig in for the last two rounds. I just got the impression after that ninth... Usyk 10, 11, 12, we really saw the very best of him to, to make sure he won that fight. Yeah, and if you look at the judges' scorecards on paper, you know, those last three rounds swung it, yeah. swung it, swung it over the line for him. So, yeah, sign of a true champion. The championship rounds, bit of a cliche. Um, did Alexander maybe take the ninth off um, to, to restore and sort of go again for the last couple of rounds? So, yeah, it was interesting, fascinating, and must say, you know, it's been, a, it's been great working with Alexander and his team over the last couple of years. You know, we've had, what, five or six fights with him now? Um, loved every minute and hopefully we can work for them again in the future definitely they're a great bunch and you know it's exciting to see what AJ's going to do next it's exciting to see what Usyk's going to do next Usyk Fury is Tyson Fury the man to beat Alexander Usyk do you think? Uh, yeah, I think so, yeah. I, I think the size, and I could just sort of see it in my head, maybe Fury being a little bit dirty and just using his natural um, size advantage to to his favour. Um, but, you know, it's a fight we, we have to see for, for all the marbles. 100%. Let's talk about uh, Mexico, because that's our show that's coming up next in the calendar this year. Maybe one that's gone a little bit under the radar, but a quadruple header, I believe. Estrada on that card. Let's talk about that and, and what we can expect to see on Design Scott. Yeah, Saturday the 3rd of September in Mexico, like you say. Fairly short notice announcement, but a quadruple header. Yep, Estrada's fighting. We've got Erica Cruz defending her world title in a rematch with a, a golden boy fighter who I'm not even going to try and pronounce. Um, Rocky Rocky Hernandez coming off the back of that first round demolition against Castaneda in action as well. And there's also a, an IBF world light flyweight um, title on the line as well. So yeah, decent little card. Those ones are often really competitive, well matched and one to keep an eye out for next week. We've got a little bit of time before our next UK show, but obviously we're building up to, to the big one. October 8th for the O2. I'm actually off to the Isle of Wight tomorrow morning, which will... Uh, be an interesting experience. Going to spend a couple of days with Connor Ben, Nigel Ben, Tony Sims. Very small group. You know, they've taken themselves away to get their head down at the start of this training camp. And, you know, it's exciting to go over there. We've got a couple of days in Brighton with, with you back next week. But we're going full steam ahead now on the content from that side of things. Well, it looks like he might be up early. I, th- I saw on Connor's Instagram yesterday, mm. he was up doing sprints in the Isle of Wight at 4am, I think. So, yeah. um yeah, you'll have to set your alarm for that one, man. That's one for the camera boys. Uh, yeah, good luck with that, lads. I think that one. Uh, <laughs> just really quickly, obviously, let's touch on, on the Nottingham card because what a fantastic card this is. We spoke already about Lee Wood and Mauricio Lara. That's a cracking fight that, that we cannot wait for. But elsewhere, I mean, Kid Galahad stepping up to 135 to fight Maxi Hughes. A very interesting fight. Stylistically, a very interesting fight. And we know Barry was struggling to make 126. How, how his body holds up at 135 and how the power holds up as well. Yeah, 
just said the word interest in there, and, and it is interesting on paper, this one. Um, so pleased for Maxi to be given a, a big fight, and look, if he comes through this, maybe those titles will fragment after Cambosis and Haney rematch, so a lot of lot of doors could open for the winner of this one. And Harper stepping up just quickly uh, to, to face Hannah Rankin up at 154, that's another very intriguing fight, bearing in mind... Terry is still rebuilding from the Baumgartner defeat. I think, you know, she, she deserves credit for taking this. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, dare to be great is something you often see across Steffi Ball's social media channels. And Terry obviously feels you know, that, that the time is now to maybe heal from that rebuilding process and go on to become a, a two-weight world champion. But, you know, Hannah Rankin's had two or three solid wins on the trot and is a confidence fighter. So will the weight play a part? We'll see on fight night, but De- yeah. Definitely, and more fights to be announced soon um, on that Nottingham card. Certainly a card not to be missed live on the zone of course, on September the 24th. Talking about moving up in weights, one man who knows how to do that is Canelo Alvarez, but he's moved back down to 168 to face Gennady Golovkin. And joining us next is Daniel Gill, who knows exactly what it's like to share the ring with Triple G, nine years on, in fact, from his fight with Darren Barker. He joins us now to look back on that memorable night in Atlantic City. Well, we're delighted to be joined all the way over from Sydney, Australia, two-time middleweight champion of the world, Daniel Gill. Daniel, you've just got back from a few days in Bali, I believe, mate. How was your time over there? Yeah, very, very relaxing. It was great to get away. Let's just talk about the fight with Darren Barker. From your perspective, you know, Darren's always been around my career since I started a matchroom, being a former matchroom fighter and now being a zone pundit as well. We want to hear the story, though, from your perspective. Does it feel like it's been nine years ago when you sit live in Sydney and t- talk about this fight now? Uh, to, to be honest, it, it doesn't really. Um, yeah, time definitely goes quickly. But, yeah, it definitely doesn't feel like that long ago. Or even though, yeah, there's a lot of, of stuff that happened that has happened in between that. You know, it, it was a great fight. I remember it being a, a great fight. And, uh, yeah, I've watched it many times over the years. Darren says one of the plus points heading into that fight, Daniel, was because he'd boxed over there before. It was familiar to him. It was your first fight in America whilst you'd won in Germany before, which we'll come on to. But was there ever any going into the unknown sort of type feeling for you head, heading over stateside? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, to be honest, you know, it's something that I had aspirations to do. Like, I, I definitely wanted to fight in the US. You know, obviously, I, I wanted to also fight and, and headline in the US as well. And, uh, to be defending my my world title, my um, IBF world title, yeah, on a big show in the US was something that I had dreamt about as a little kid. You know, I was definitely definitely looking forward to it. I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't overly nervous about it, but at the same time, I, I did have respect for Darren, and I knew he was going to be a tough fight. You know, I, I believe there were other guys that they had offered me to fight. Uh, which I believe weren't quite as good, but me and my team sat down and we decided to, to yeah, take the fight with Darren because we knew it was going to be a great fight. Well, just talk to me about that because you said many times in your career, Daniel, that you loved being the underdog. You were the defending champion, of course. It was a bit of a 50-50 at the time, a pick and fight, but did you see yourself as the slight favourite, perhaps? I only felt like I was a slight favourite because I held the title. You know, I knew it was definitely a 50-50 fight. Um, you know, we were both hungry. Yeah, yeah, we were both, you know, young and hungry, you know, probably in our peak as fighters. You know, I knew there wouldn't be a whole lot between us. Um, yeah, like I said, the only the only thing I felt was in my favour was, you know, the fact that I, I had the title. And, you know, I, I was hoping, yeah, if it went to a close decision that it would, would lean towards me, but... Um, you know, it is what it is. Well, the most talked about part of that fight, of course, Daniel, was obviously that sixth round. When you landed that body shot, talk me through what was going 
through your mind and the shot itself. Did you feel like the fight might have been over at that stage? Yeah, yeah, and no, I, I landed that body shot. I, I felt like I set that body shot up. And I felt like I, I, well, I knew that I hurt him um, badly. You know, I seen him drop to the ground, and you know, he was he was wincing in pain. Um, but also, you know, I, I believed he was going to get up. I didn't believe that was going to be it. Um, you know, I was preparing myself to, to get back out there and fight. And, uh, yeah, yeah, he, you know, I mean, to, for him to get up off the canvas like that, um, you know, I just had to show him respect as well. I, I was a little bit disappointed in myself because I probably got a, a bit of a rush of blood, a little bit too much adrenaline, and I felt like I had to go out there and finish it off straight after that. And I probably went out there and, and wasted some punches. Um, you know, I knew what had caused that, knocked down to begin with um, but I felt like I, I just chased after it and I tried to do too much to try and finish it uh, whereas if I sat back and then the finish may have come Did you think you'd done enough uh, at the end of the fight when Michael Buffer was reading the scorecards out in the ring you can you can feel the tension when you watch it back now but did you think you'd done enough to, to get the win? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean like I, I went back to my corner after that fight and uh, yeah like I, I felt like my my corner, yeah, they were they were happy with the way things went. They were they were confident in me. I, I felt like I, you know, got, got a little bit of confidence off them. You know how, how the fight probably went. You know, obviously when you're in there, you do get a bit of a feeling how you believe the fight goes. But it's, it's definitely harder to to score the fight whilst you're in it. Um, but I felt like I was probably the stronger, um, a little bit more dominant, especially through some of the stages. Yeah, that that's uh, not our job as, as judges. So, you know, we got to put that or place that in those in their hands. Like you say, and, and that is in the history books now. That that fantastic night in Atlantic City. One question we all always ask the fighters, Daniel, is, you know, after they've shared yep. twelve grueling rounds with another man, the respect that's there. Have you had, if any, type of, of contact with Darren Barker since that night? Um, yeah, no, I haven't. I haven't met. Like I think we spoke. Uh, yeah, just a, a few times just after the fight, but. Apart from that, um, yeah, I haven't haven't seen Darren. Um, I think we may have spoken a few times over social media, but yeah, apart from that, yeah, we, we haven't haven't met up before. And ten years next year, it'd be uh, it'd be fantastic to to have that meet up. Would you be Would you be up for doing doing a nice little bit of content with with Mister Barker himself? Yeah, that'd be great. You know, I'd love to. I'd love to catch up and and see how he's going. Um, you know, it was a great fight back then, and uh, you know, it'd be good to shake hands and say good day. And, and now for you, of course, Daniel, happy in retirement, but you're still involved with the sport, commentating, coaching. Just talk to us about those roles because it's somewhat similar to Darren. You know, Darren's so passionate about the sport of boxing and he's so happy he's been able to remain in the sport at some capacity. Is that is that a similar feeling for you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, you know I've been excited that, you know, I've, I've been able to, you know, and currently work at a few different gyms and, uh, you know, be involved with, with some up-and-coming up young fighters and, uh yeah, yeah. Like, I, I don't think, I think because boxing ha- has always been a big part of my life, I don't think there's, there would be a time that I'd be able to step away and, and not have boxing in my life at all. So, yeah, to, to have it in, in the capacity that it is at the moment, you know, I'm ex- extremely excited and uh, you know, it'd, be, it'd be nice to see where it goes from here. Well, Daniel, it's been a pleasure to speak. I'll make sure I pass on your best regards to Darren Barker when I next speak to him. And hopefully uh, we'll be able to catch up with you, you in the coming months when, when we come down under for our Matchroom's next venture. But thanks for coming on the show today, mate. We appreciate your time and uh, hopefully we'll catch up soon.
We move on now to our Everyone But The Fighter segment, the part of the show where we pay focus to just that, Everyone But The Fighter. Let me hand you back over to producer Scott, who's going to tell us right now who's joining us this week. Well, Jamie, we've ticked off a couple of core roles in boxing over the last couple of weeks. What have we had? We have hand wrapping, we've had cuts, and we've had matchmaking as well. All three segments are great. So no pressure on Coogan Cassius, who's our next guest, who has to live up to that. We're going to look at the digital boxing content world now. Well, Coogan, thanks for coming on our Everyone But The Fighter segment of the show. We're here to speak about the world of video and content today. You've just got back from Saudi Arabia, of course, an an emotional week and a historic night, though, in Jeddah once again. How do you reflect on the event as a whole now? It was a long week. It was. I think everyone kind of involved with any media aspect of the week will tell you it was a long week. These weeks are quite stressful, especially when it's like high profile like AJ and Usyk. So I'd say it was a disappointing week in terms of the fact that AJ didn't win. And it's no disrespect to Usyk, obviously, because he's been a great champion and etc. But I think from a British boxing point of view, we kind of wanted Joshua to kind of to do it just because the potential fights, etc. will follow the journey for Joshua for the last however many years. So from that point, it was, I suppose, a little bit disappointing. But his performance wasn't disappointing, in my opinion. Everyone's had their say over the last couple of days, etc. about this. But as a fan, couldn't have asked for anything more. He, he did what he could and uh, it, he fell short on the night. He, he'll move on from there. But when you're heading out to these shows, do you guys have conference calls where you'll plot sort of the numbers you want to obtain throughout that week? Uh, and if so, how satisfied were you with the numbers as a whole that, that you got over the last week or so in Saudi? Well, well, for people that don't know, we tried to sign you, Jamie, years ago, and um, <laughs> you didn't want to know. So, you know, you took the matching route rather than the IFL route, but we'll, we'll move on from that. Money, um, t- money talks, mate, sadly. Money talks, money talks. <laughs> yeah, I think during the week, the difficult thing to do, I think, from any kind of YouTube aspect is predict numbers, because you don't really know what you're getting. You have a, like a basic plan of like who you want to interview, but you don't really know who you're going to interview that week. You can have a plan, but it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get them. Do you know what I mean? Like we get there at the start of the week, we work out who's there and think, oh, you know, this will be good and this person will be good, that person will be good, but it doesn't always materialise. So I think it's difficult to predict numbers. Um, I think kind of we're consistent in terms of anything related to Anthony Joshua or the, kind of the big fight weeks. I don't sit there and go, oh, we want to reach this amount of views and this. We kind of, we do everything we can. As long as we've done everything we can and we've tried to do everything we can, then I don't, I can't really complain at the end of the week, if that makes sense. Yeah, and you're so experienced, Cook. You've been around around the sport for so many years now. You, you say when you're heading out to these places, you can't necessarily make a plan of who you're going to interview. So how much research do you tend to do before each interview or do you tend to be able to use your experience to sort of freeball a lot of the interviews? I think the only research that really comes with is with fighters that we're not really familiar with. Like there was a few fighters on the card from Saturday that I hadn't interviewed before and uh, I think that's the only research element of like if you haven't interviewed them and you're not totally aware of their, um, you know, their complete career stats, etc. It's to do a little bit of research in terms of finding out there. But the majority of the people that fought on the card, your Callum Smiths, your Hergoviches, you know, Ramler Ali, all, all these fighters we know and we kind of know their story so it's almost like second hand to go and do stuff with them but there was a few fighters on the card, this is where the research question comes in. I know IFL started pretty small scale, Coogan, which we're going to talk about now, you've just surpassed 750,000 subs, 1 billion views on YouTube as well, I believe the channel's nearly 12 years old now, when... 
when you think about the, the journey to this point, to being involved in the biggest fights in the sport of boxing, what was the original founding ambitions for our IFL? Because I know you've got a bit of acting experience. We're all very, very familiar with the, the Oscar-worthy performance in EastEnders. But talk to us about the, uh, the journey from that point to now and what the original goals actually were. I'm glad you brought up EastEnders, to be fair, because obviously, obviously people will know that I was a pimp in EastEnders <laughs> in one episode. Hector smashed the roll and all. I mean, I had to decline the Oscars and all that, but that's a, that's a different story. But you know what? I think part of the plan with IFL from years ago is that there was no plan. This is early on. Now it's completely different. There is a bit more structure, but you've got to think like in 2010, it was a case of like, it wasn't really a known thing to even go to boxing events here in the UK. The fighters weren't used to it as well. They're used to like the tabloids and the broadcast situation in terms of interviews. And then you got me at the time running around and interviewing people like on a handheld camera. That was a new concept for them. But obviously, as time's evolved, this is now the norm. You see any press event now, the majority of them are from the YouTube world. And that's no, not me saying, oh, you know, we started all this because no one really started it. You know, Ellie Secback was doing this in America four years before me. So there's no credit there for, you know, you may inspire someone to pick up a camera and do the same thing, but. It's not like it's not a thing to take credit for, and I don't really like it when people do take credit and say that you know they kind of started off a path. They've contributed to a path, but they haven't started anything off because who are we to really say that we started off anything? But I'm just telling you, when I first started doing events, like the early matchroom events back in 2010, 2011, the prize fighters with Rocky Fielding, uh, the Battle of Essex with Lee Purdy and Colin Lyons, all these kind of events, there was no one else doing it. That's all I can say. I can't say that started any kind of trend. I'm just saying that there were there weren't anyone else doing it then. Cook, I was doing some research actually. We had um, Daniel Gill on the show earlier on today, and I come across a, an old docu series, No Ordinary Life. Do you know that? Do you know the story behind that? Yeah, is like Eddie will tell you as well. So, like, it's the first time we kind of we wanted to follow you for a day and break up like a little little series into four. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was bang up for it. And I think at the time he thought like. Oh yeah, I, I I filmed London back then. Oh yeah, and I think he he said like he said to Chloe like <laughs> he's like and he's like oh like a, a TV crew want to come and film me like this was his attitude back then. And then we're rocked up at his door, like uh, me and James at the time got in his car and followed him up until the the show which Yassin El Machi won that prize fighter that that show. It just broke it up into a thing. It was like a, a it was more it was a day in the life of Eddie Hunt, but. That footage now is, is gold, I think, because it was it shows the transition of where Matchroom and, and Herner come from. I think Frank Smith's in there about 12 years old in the <laughs> office. I've made it onto iFilm, I've cracked it or something, he said. Johnny Wish was in that video as well, just saying hello. Never did interviews, but just said hello. Uh, there was a tour of the office. It's a good thing to look back on, you know? We have just expanded Coog, and obviously I'm going to plug your new podcast on our podcast, uh, Raw. The Fight Within. Talk to us about this, uh, what inspired that, and I suppose the title, was that inspired from your raw and brutally honest captions that we see on IFL every day? Yeah, uh, the old clickbait titles that uh, <laughs> we've been accused of putting on, which I, I deny, obviously. But uh, yeah, I think raw was kind of was a main title. The Fight Within is an explanation, really, of the idea of getting to know the fighters from a different level. You know, these podcasts I'm doing at the moment are not about who you're fighting next and, you know, what's the goals for you in, in terms of boxing. These questions are specifically tailored to get into the fights. And I think we've done that, you know, we've done that with Fab the Fabio Wardley thing was, was 
very good because I've known Fabio for like five years, but I learned more from Fabio in that hour I did with him than I did in five years. And then I'm with Connor Ben, just done Ebony Bridges. It's it's just a, a, a different angle. I've enjoyed them. Like there's so many good ones coming up. There's Sonny Edwards, Darren Barker, Dave Colwell. There is so many good ones coming up where like literally I'm at the end of it thinking, didn't know that, but I've known you for how many years and we've not done this before. And you're saying about the fighters open up to you there, Coog. I think, you know, one thing we're sort of taught at Matram is you know, to be always professional, but never too matey, never be seen to be being too matey. But it strikes me always that part of the reason a lot of fans, well, I always did as a fan, I'll admit that before I started working at Matram, watch your interviews is because of your relationship you have with the fighters. How important is it for you to maintain those friendships? And I suppose when things don't go right for a fighter in the ring, does it does it make it more difficult for you to be emotionally invested? Oh, yeah, 100%. I think sometimes, you know, we're a little bit too emotionally invested in our relationships with fighters, but that's come over time, and I won't apologise for that. I'm sitting there inside a fan. I remember once I went to uh, Gavin Rees against Adrian Brody, yeah, up in uh, Atlantic City, and um, very early, this 10 years ago, and uh, every punch Gavin was fine. I was getting up off my seat. This is in America. Come on, Gav. Go on, Gav. Go on, Gav. Do you know what? I've got one of the media people at the time, like who was like in charge of the accreditation that come over to my table and said to me, sorry, Coogan, you can't cheer in press row. And I was like, he's my mate. And they're like, you can't cheer. Don't do that. And I was like, I found it baffling. I was like, well, I've come here because of Gavin Reed. He's fighting Adrian Broner. You know, he's thrown in a couple of left hooks there that I've cheered and I can't cheer. And it was it was literally like, I was, I couldn't get my head around it. Is that why, you don't, is that why you don't cheer anymore? Because you, you never, I've never really seen you cheering in the press row anymore, mate. Saying that, you're too big time you for the can't, press row. You, well, you don't put me in the press row. You put me up the fucking top tier. Yeah, put, <laughs> mate, you're in a dressing room. You nick interviews off me all the time, mate. <laughs> no, but you know what? To be honest with you, I am a bit of a fanboy of fight nights with fighters that we know. I was the other night. You know, obviously, listen, I love music a bit. You know, they've all, the whole team with Alex and Lucas, they've always been good with us. And it ain't that. But with, with Joshua, like I said earlier on, it's like for British boxing and like, you know, I interviewed Joshua 11 years ago and I've got a very good relationship with Joshua. So you are a little bit fanboy at the time and you're like, every punch thrown, you're off your seat and all that. I mean, there's people that don't do that, but I don't know. That's just me, I suppose. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think, you know, you're talking about the press conference rooms becoming busier. Coogan, you won't mind me saying on the air here, you are prone to losing a microphone, uh, to leaving a tripod, leaving around the press conference room. Have you ever lost any content? Have you ever lost anything, be that through a software malfunction or you've been asked not to put something out, probably more, more often than not, I imagine. But have you ever... Have you ever lost something through like, some sort of technical issue? And like, how did that make you feel? Like a golden bit of content, Coog. I remember I interviewed Oscar De La Hoya when Kel Brook fought uh, Sean Porter in Carson, I think eight years ago. And uh, I lost the De La Hoya clip. First time I interviewed De La Hoya and lost it because the sound weren't on. Like, I got back to the room, put it out, no sound. I was like, fucking absolutely, like, livid. So first time I interviewed De La Hoya, there's no sound, had to lose it. Didn't get him again that week. So... Yeah, these things do happen. Not as often as that now, kind of, we do everything we can to make sure these malfunctions don't happen, but it doesn't stop them from happening. Let's just talk about these last two points now, Coog. These are two questions that we're asking all of our guests. You sort of touched on it a little bit when you said you're a fanboy, but when you're watching a fight, how does a fight play out through Coog and Cassius's eyes? I suppose it depends. A lot of fights, as you guys well know, I'm watching it around the back in the office because, you know, like, when you're there, a fight happens, say it goes, say a 10-rounder, you watch that then sometimes you're waiting for the interview 
afterwards, the post-fight, and you, you, this happens a lot, you miss the first two, three rounds, the next fight, or the first round, or whatever. And that's the worst thing, because if it's a close fight, if you haven't watched the first two rounds, how are you scoring it? So sometimes it's easier for me, like I said, to watch it on the TV, even though I'm there, apart from the main event or the main specific fight that you want to watch and you make kind of make it right, I'm going to watch that fight. But a lot of the fights, I'm still watching it on the telly because the fight has then come into a room and it's that process kind of works a little bit more smoothly. For someone who is starting out, what attributes do you think you need to make it in this world and what advice would you give to them? You have to stick it out and you have to fucking go through everything. Like, and it's difficult because going to everything means that you have to spend money, your own money, right? There ain't no one going out, you know, we'll pay for this and pay for that, right? When you first start out. So you have to stick with it. You have to. And when it's not working, when you're losing money, that's where it becomes the point of your life where you think, what do I do? Because that's what we did. After four years, I remember talking to a couple of people and I was going to sack it off. I thought to myself, do you know what? Some great content. We had about 10 million views on the channel, whatever it was back then. It's great, but we're not getting paid. I think the first sponsor we actually officially had was uh, Betway, Fox Groves, that kind of time. We had a great deal of money, but it was, it was something. And I think people, when they get to that point of giving up, just remember, anyone doing this, right, just remember, if someone like me, right, literally a donut with a camera can get a billion views, anyone can fucking do it, right? <laughs> Trust me, there's a bit of truth in that. If I can do this, me, right, and I ain't the best interview in the world, there's 50 million other interviews better than me, but I I work hard and I do it consistently. That's the only thing I've got in my in my tank, which is maybe ahead of some other people. But as an interviewer, yeah, bang average. Jamie, you're a better interviewer than me. So <laughs> You're just saying that. You probably ask better questions. So but I'm just saying to you, it's not always about that because sometimes hard work hard work overpowers talent. Remember that. Well, it is that time in the week. Once again, dance partners. On the face of it, it is quite simple, but let's see if that continues to be the case. We speak to a fighter who has had 15 or more fights in their professional career. They then get as 30 seconds to name as many of their previous opponents as they can in that time. As the weeks go on, we'll formulate a leaderboard in true Top Gear fashion and the winner will receive a donation to give to a charity of their choice. Now, who could we get on this week was always the question. We, of course, wanted a fighter with... One of the biggest fan bases in the country, one of the most exciting fighters to watch in this country, and a fighter who's still pinching himself from the start. His beloved Legion <laughs> have made to the Premier League season. It's the Leeds Warrior himself, Joshy Warrington. Josh, how you doing, mate? No, I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. I think you missed out uh, Mr. Two-time world champion as well, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so nice you had to do it twice. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Josh, yeah. just talk to me about, uh, about the start Leeds have had. I mean, what, two wins and a draw... Brilliant against Chelsea. Were you there at Ellen Road uh, last week? What was the atmosphere like? I was, mate. Yeah, I was. And uh, yeah, two wins, two wins and a draw. That could have easily been uh, three wins. I think we, we conceded late against uh, Southampton. Bit of time legs out there, but we're two up there. But the Chelsea game, yeah, Sunday was absolutely fantastic. One of the best atmospheres that I've seen in a long time, and uh, the performance to go with it as well. We absolutely battered them, and you know it would have been it would have been surreal to be. Stood there watching Leeds United back Chelsea and you know, these big Premier League giants, and uh, you know it, it was fantastic to watch and challenge their crowd and um, you know a massive lift and a boost for the for the team and the club. 
How's the atmosphere, Josh, when you're, you're sitting in your three-piece suit watching from hospitality? How does that compare to, to what you used to be down in the cheddar circle, mate? With a Stone Island on. Everything was thrown down. Well, um, you know, being in the fancy seats and that, they're not as, they're not as lively. Um, I think there's only me and a few other lads around who start swearing and this and other. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, listen, I think uh, by by time... It, we were freeing the up. I think uh, there were little pensioners standing up and singing and screaming. So uh, everyone was absolutely buzzing on, on the weekend. And I think the performance on the pitch just, just matched that. And Leeds pressed them so high and put so much pressure on that it was hard not to cheer for them. You know, they just every time they were they were going forward, there were a lot of um, energy from it. So, yeah, it was very good to watch, mate. Very good to watch. Brilliant. Certainly an impressive performance. Let's talk about uh, you, Josh. Injury and recovery update. I remember in the build-up to the rematch with Kiko, all you wanted was some bread and butter pudding to celebrate <laughs> that win. But things didn't quite go to plan. You had to drink your Guinness uh, through a straw as yeah. well, didn't you, my man? Just talk yeah. to us about that and how, how recovery is going now. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a tough time. I didn't realise um, I didn't realise how tough mentally it could be. You know, I think you, you go through camp, you've got a lot of mental pressure on, on your shoulders and, um, you know, kind of felt like it was, it was shit or bust in the last fight. If you, can, if you, if you don't win now, then you're probably not going to be at world level unless you get a lucky, a lucky shot, for instance. Um, and then you come through, you know, win the world title, you don't care about what injuries you've sustained because the hand's been raised and, you know, I was buzzing like for, for a few weeks after even though I couldn't have my bread and butter pudding. I think the frustration really started to set in then. You know, um, I'd been told off, like, the surgeons that I wouldn't be able to train for, like, 12 weeks. They were saying, like, you don't want to be sparring or anything for another, like, five months. So that were that was frustrating. Um, normally, after fights, I'd like to get back in the gym. I'd like to be working. I'd like to be building on, on my previous performances. So, yeah, that, that was pretty tough. Talking about the confidence in the back pocket, no doubt you'll be taking that into your next fight. Luis Alberto Lopez is your IBF mandatory, another Mexican. Yeah. But is that the uh, is that the likely next opponent for you, mate? It has to be that one. Um, unfortunately, you know the IBF have a strict ruling where you have to fight your mandatories, and I and I hear that um, he was supposed to fight Kiko Martinez. Um, they were able to get an exemption because um, Kiko desperately wanted to fight me, but I don't think they're able to push him back a second time. Um, so it has to be uh, Luis Alberto Lopez. He's been keeping himself busy. Um, he bought a free box on the weekend. He couldn't help shout my name after that fight as well. Um, him and his little groupies have been sending me DMs on the Instagram <laughs> saying I need to stop bottling it and just make the fight happen. Well, listen, they, we'll get that fight happening soon, and uh, you know, full focus will be on him. But I know that get through him, there's uh, there's bigger fights out there. Brilliant. We can't wait to see you back in the ring, mate. Now, we must just get your thoughts, Josh, on the recently announced fight, Lee Wood versus Mauricio Lara. Your reaction to it, your thoughts on it, and how do you see that fight unfolding? I feel that Lee should should beat him pretty comfortably. He annoys me because I'm, I'm, the way that I got, I got beat against him, I mean, I, and I got knocked down in fourth, but I, I still battled on, and, you know, it took him nine rounds to to, to um, knock me out, and I was probably half concussed by the time... Uh, by the fifth round, so yeah, it, it annoys me from my my own performances because I, I I do look and I think a decent level fighter should beat him quite comfortably. I think in one of his latest fights, he was a little bit exposed, you know, he exposed with the with the body shots and he, he didn't seem to like them. Yes, he has got the he's got the strong power, he's got a strong punch, but if you know how to deal with a bit of movement and boxing and 
that's what the plan was to follow my second fight to deal with properly. Then we should have taken care of. But he still, I think he was still will be dangerous for three or four rounds, and and I think that's what Wood's got to be very careful of. You know, he's not the the fastest of starters, and and in the previous fights he's had where he's been knocked down, it's always been him going on the canvas in the um, in the early stages of the fight. So he needs to be defensively clinical. He needs to be aware in the first couple of rounds, and I think if he does that, then he should get the job done. But Lara's up will be dangerous in the first four or five rounds. Well, we can't wait for it, Josh. And let's get straight down to business because you are our fourth contestant on Dance Partners. Darren Barker tops the leaderboard with 14. Tony Bell, you won behind with 13. John Ryder in fourth with nine as things stand. You've had 33 pro fights to date. So here we go. Scott's going to start the, uh, the clock in three, two, one. Delroy Spencer, Pavel Senkov, Danny McDermott, John Riley, uh, Mark Callahan, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, Martin Lindsay, Linda Monroe, Samir Mainemne, um, sorry, there's pressure on, Linda Monroe, Martin Lindsay, uh, David Dele, um, Joe Brunkner, Isasha Magata, um, Patrick Island. Carl Frampton, Lee Selby, Dennis Salan, Kiko Martinez, Kid oh, Galahad. We are done. Oh, that was, you, um, that was good, I think. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that over, Josh, actually, because I think you're probably in the lead there. My ass, you're aching, boys. <laughs> <laughs> were, you pa- were you pacing around the living room there, mate? Yeah, I'm trying to lick the switch here, like, sure. <laughs> you are top of the leaderboard with oh, 16. 16. 16. I'm up and up at sofa. <laughs> I will say, though, Josh, I will say, you did actually say uh, Kid Galhad and Kiko Martinez. They were slightly outside the bell. So you got 16. Um, you did miss Maurizio Lara. Is that deliberate? Yeah. Uh, I, well, I think I would have some cuss for one of them. Like, <laughs> Thanks for coming on, Warrior, mate. Speak soon, mate. Cheers, guys. So as always, we're going to finish up and chat through some shouts by you, the fans, in answer to our question. What was the best thing to happen in boxing last week? Joining us this week, live from Croatia, Alan the Savage Babich. Alan, how are you, my friend? Hello, JB, the Savage is here, oh, my British Army. I love you, my Savage Army. Well, Alan, it's been, uh, we're actually sat at the office right now, myself and Scott. It's been just over a year now since the proposal at fight camp. When is uh, when is the big day and how's Lady Savage doing? Oh, Lady Savage is doing great and we are, we are just happy together like this, you know. So I don't want to rush anything or everything because all my head is in boxing right now. I have big things to do in my next fight, you know. So it's going to come, it's going to come. But, you know, we are planning on everything. You know? I can't wait to happen, but for now it's just boxing in my head. Well, when the time does come, Alan, don't forget to invite us on the stag do. We want to come over for that. Of course you will, Jamie and Scott. Of course, you're my, you're my guys, you know, you're my family. <laughs> you took me in. You took me in like, like an orphan. And I respect that. Brilliant. Okay, well, we're going to jump straight into the questions. Um, let's not beat around the bush. Julian Ray says, the best thing to happen in boxing last week was Hergovic versus Zhang. It was pure fireworks. Well, Alan, I, I remember texting you at the time uh, when, during the fight. We were sending each other a few WhatsApps. Talk to me about what was okay. going through your mind when you watched Philip Hergovic against Zhili Zhang and, and who you believe should have won that fight. Well, listen, that fight was maybe even more interesting to me than the Usyk Joshua fight. It was, it was a pure fireball. It was a true heavyweight clash. And I really enjoyed the fight, but I saw something in Hergovic like, like he didn't want to be in there. You know? I saw something 
he's he's looking outside of the ring and stuff and his behavior of his body in the corner it was odd you know so i don't know if he really wanted to be in there what, as much what, as what he was like why do you think that was, Alan? And, and I know I saw Dillian White put a, an Instagram story out saying, look, let's make the Babic-Hergovic fight now. Obviously, we know that was a final eliminator, so you'll appreciate that perhaps Hergovic's career path is a little bit in a different place to yours right now. But do you believe, seeing seeing that, that you believe you could you could be the man to beat Hergovic? Well, listen, I know I can beat him for the last five years, so that is nothing new to me. But we are we are both on our own paths, you know. I'm mandatory for Bridgeweight WBC belt. He's mandatory for heavyweight IBF or, or whatever. So we are on a different path right now. So it's not gonna be, it's not gonna happen. I don't expect it to happen. But uh, at some point, you know, I'm sure it will. But people saw his last fight and my last fight. So you be the judge. I wanted to be in there, you know. I wanted, I wanted it. I, I want the chaos. I still live the chaos. I think he's a little bit on the comfort side, you know, of living and stuff. And he likes, you know, the the comfort too much, you know. Savage doesn't like comfort. Fuck comfort. <laughs> we just mentioned there, Alan, about being mandatory for the WBC bridgeweight title. We know Oscar Rivas's fight with Lucas Rosansky was actually postponed last weekend. Is that frustrating for you? What do you know about what that might mean for when you might get your shot? Well, listen, of course it's not because they are telling that to me, but I like, I, I never thought I'm going to fight for the, you know, I, I never, how can I explain it? I never took it seriously, you know. I'm just, I'm just here. I want to fight. I just really want to fight and that's it. So if Oscar Rivers is the next fight, that would be great, but I'm not going to put all my money on that. You know, I'm not going to put all of my, all my wishes on that single fight. So I have many fights. I have Dave Allen. I have Oscar Rivers. I have Krugovic maybe. I have many fights that I can fight and people want to see me in all kinds of fights. So I didn't put all my, my hope in that fight. Next question from the fans is from Over and Unders 6, who says, The fact we have a clear path to Undisputed with Fury and Usyk is the best thing to happen in boxing last week. Well, talk to us about that potential fight, Alan, between Tyson Fury and Alexander Usyk. You're used to being, you know, a, a smaller man coming up against bigger heavyweights. Alexander Usyk would certainly be a smaller heavyweight coming up, coming up against a giant heavyweight in Tyson Fury. Stylistically, yeah. how, how would you see that fight unfolding? Yeah, I think that is the most interesting fight in the world right now. You know, I think uh, I think they're both amazing fighters in their own way. You know, but I just I like Usyk. I think Usyk is the best in the world. But I would give that fight to Tyson Fury. You know, I, I think he's just too big. You know, there, there is a there is a limit on you know where it becomes becomes too much. You know, I think Fury is just too big. You know, it's weird for me to say it because I don't believe in that, uh, you know, heights and stuff, but the man is a giant, you know, and he knows how to box. And he's a similar style, actually, to Usyk. You know, he, can, he can box out, like commenter also. So, I don't know, it's a tough fight, but I would, you know, the only man in the world who can beat Usyk is Tyson Fury, in my opinion. K-Kid Down Deep says the return of Deontay Wilder, he can still play a big part in the division over the next few years. I think I agree. I think it's brilliant to see Deontay Wilder back in the ring. I suppose when we're looking at what the next options might be for Anthony Joshua, I suppose that's a fight that that you have to talk about. Alan, would you be licking your lips if, if AJ was to get in the ring with Deontay Wilder? 
Well, of course, but I want Deontay Wilder to fight my my manager, Dylan White. I, I always call for that fight. I think that would be an amazing fight. You know, I think they just they, they're perfect right now for each other. You know, I don't know what Joshua is going to do next. You know, because he needs to say it. But I think Deontay Wilder and uh, Dylan White would be mega fight. As far as what. Dillian might be doing next. Obviously, that could be one for, for a little bit down the line next year. Would you be interested in seeing Dillian Derrick once again, running it back for the trilogy? Would you be interested in seeing that? Is Dillian interested in that fight? Well, who wouldn't be? You know? that, that is an all-action war. You know, you, I think the whole of, whole of Britain wouldn't sleep that night. You know, it would be a crazy fight. Of course I would. But I kind of I kind of want to see Dillian against Wilder. I don't know why, but it's been like that for two years right now. I want to see that fight. I really want to see that fight, you know, as, as a boxing fan. But also, Chisora, whenever Chisora fights, I'm going to watch. You know, and, and all of us will. Well, Alan, we are always uh, happy to have you on any sort of show we put on, mate. We're always excited when your name is on a fight card. You, you touched on it earlier. Have you spoke to Eddie about when you could be uh, back out over here in the UK? Well, yeah, I, I speak to Dillian on a, that uh, Eddie was uh, in the Joshua Week camp, you know, madness and stuff. So I'm, I'm waiting for Dillian to tell me what's next. You know, I said, I'm back, you know, I'm back in full training. I hope soon. I hope really soon, you know. Well, Alan, we can't wait to have you back my friend thanks so much for coming on thank you very much I love you I love Scott and all of my Savage Army Savage wishes you all the best things in life peace we love you too mate cheers Cheers, mate speak soon well that was episode 4 of Flash Knockdown I've been Jamie Ward as per every week joined by Producer Scott. Scott good episode actually that's not catching on that's not catching on that's not catching on I'm going to get you a t-shirt what, saying I am producer just, Scott? Just so no one forgets. Do I have to wear that at shows? <laughs> Every day, mate. Never mind Sorry. just the shows. Uh, please like, subscribe, share the pod as always to keep us in a job. That actually rhymed a little right, bit. Right, <laughs> That was off the cuff. Some great guests this week. Thanks as always to Lee Wood, Alan Babbitt, Josh Warrington, Daniel Gill, Coogan Cassius as well, and some brilliant guests coming up next week. So get your questions in for those at flashknockdown at matchroom.com. That's flashknockdown at matchroom.com. We'll be back next week. Uh, 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 uh,